So here we are. Coming to the end of a long, mostly silent, at least outwardly, intensive retreat here. Soon to be taking yourself, taking your practice, out there, wherever there is for you, for a long period of mostly not silent, at least outwardly, intensive practice there, with the possibility of wherever you go, there's your practice, with the possibility of practice everywhere. So this evening's talk is about practice here and there, practice everywhere. And what uh, one person said in an interview on the job training. In meeting with some of you in interviews these past days, and in reflecting around the endings uh, and the beginnings of my own intensive retreat practice periods, I've discovered that many of us come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts and feelings that are not really so dissimilar from those that we come into retreat with. I know for me, uh, though there's a feeling of excitement uh, and a readiness to go on an extended period of intensive practice, just before it's time to enter in, there's also often been the feeling that, well, I'm not really quite finished out here yet. Just a few more days. I just need a few more days, maybe another week, so that I can do everything that needs to be done, and then I'll be ready to go in. And I've often had the same feeling when it's time to come out. Just a little more time, just a couple of more weeks another month to do what needs to be done, and then I'll be finished, and then I'll be ready to come out. And sometimes on either end, the going in and the coming out, there's been some fear, some degree of reluctance, maybe fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known. Maybe essentially just fear of change. Fear of ending one way and entering into another way. So you might check in with yourself and see if there might be some similar thoughts, some similar feelings, some similar conditioned patterns within your own mind and heart coming up now at the end of this retreat. Similar thoughts and feelings that you might have experienced as you were preparing to come into this retreat or as the retreat was beginning. A number of years ago when I was living here as resident teacher for the staff, I was talking with a friend the evening before he was about to begin sitting a three-month retreat which I think was his fourth or fifth three-month retreat. 
And I asked him how he was feeling. And I think if I'd asked him the same question at the end of the retreat, I would have gotten a similar answer. He said, oh, I'm feeling the obligatory fear. And of course, we're not really obliged to uh, feel fear in either direction. There's always the possibility that one might feel a clean, clear, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations, without any worries, to really ready to move on to the next thing, the next form that life will take. One person in an interview described her feelings and experience in coming out of retreat as feeling like she's descending, kind of like a plane descending, landing, feeling the force of gravity, kind of coming back to Earth. And maybe others of you are experiencing something similar. There's a beautiful piece that was written by an American astronaut, Russell Swikert, about his experience in outer space. And I'd like to share this with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes, because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there, and there's no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there, going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know that the answer to this is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for human beings. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you, and somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life, that you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet, and you and all those other forms of life on that planet. Because you've had that kind of experience, it's a difference. 
and it's so precious. And of course, it is a change. A change out of retreat life into the larger world. One change being the pace of life, at least outwardly. Life moves a lot faster outside of IMS. And yet, we're supported as we move into the larger world with a deeper understanding through our weeks and months of practice of how quickly and incessantly things change. How quickly and incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in the slow pace of life in retreat. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness or the moment-to-momentness in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives, our on-the-job training out there. And we've tasted the impersonality of change, at least in moments. We've tasted that we can't stop change. We can't hold on to anything, really. And we've tasted how painful it is to try. And we've had a glimpse, maybe a bit of a taste at least, that all of this changing phenomena in our body and mind and heart isn't me. It's not anything that we can keep and call mine. It's not who I am. We've had a taste, at least in moments, that what we experience in any given moment happens, what we experience in any given moment comes together because of myriad conditions. Really an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And something happens. And then it changes quite quickly or just simply disappears. These tastes this understanding has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate to the world. There's more clarity in relation to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relation to the choices we make more connection and clarity in our relationships to others, more clarity in what's appropriate and important, what's wholesome and truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection 
as we connect or reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down, we could say. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is another change, a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers very little distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, we sleep, we talk a little bit every few days. And within this container of simplicity, we're supported to simply, mindfully pay attention to what occurs, what occurs in the body, the mind, the heart, and come to see and know, at least in moments, that the heart is connected, is open, or it's disconnected, separated, closed. We come to see, at least in moments, what brings suffering, what brings an ease of well-being. And we come to care about and respect, at least in moments, all of these cycles within our heart, our mind, our body. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. For me, over the years, this connection and respect with the cycles of my own heart and continuing to deepen in seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings an ease of well-being has brought the precepts more and more alive as the ground of practice, really the ground of my life. And we're all so similar. No matter who we are, no matter where we live, our culture, our age, our color, really we're just kind of variations on themes. And we're totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly. It wends its, wends its way into being the ground of our life, quite naturally, as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease begins to deepen and blossoms within our heart. When we see and know this, at least for moments, through our periods of intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language. It affects our actions. Seeing into our own heart affects and informs the motivation behind our words, the motivation behind our actions the actions we take out in the world. Even if at any given time we're not immediately cognitively aware of our motivations. And these are some words from the Buddha. The thought 
manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. Engaging the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice, maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves, is a very powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, our actions, and connecting us or reconnecting us to our deepest intentions, our deepest aspirations. There's a particular rendition of uh, the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza that has been especially meaningful to me, really helpful to me, actually, uh, in relationship to practice in daily life. And I don't remember, I may have shared them with you the first uh, evening of this six-week period of practice, but that seems like years ago, so... (laughs) I'd like to share them with you again. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And again, for me, Uh, as I'm sure for many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of the retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in ways that serve and support the process of awakening more and more. And it's been interesting to see this happening over time sometimes letting go of particular habits of distraction that are done with a very conscious intention. 
as our practice deepens, actually there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally. We relinquish more easily and naturally the habits, the distractions of our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And it's very often around quite ordinary, quite mundane aspects of our life. Letting go, renouncing, simplifying our life. There was a time for me when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn the radio on. And at some point, I began to notice that it was really a distraction. So I decided quite consciously not to turn it on all the time. I'd I'd actually then begin driving somewhere, and I'd notice my hand would start to move up, kind of automatically begin to move toward the knob, the radio knob. The force of habit is really very incredibly strong. So mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down and put it back on the steering wheel. At some point, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And then the choice was available, to to or not to. Now, most of the time, it doesn't occur to me to turn on the radio while I'm driving. And sometimes I'm surprised by this lack of occurrence. And there are times, for instance, when I've not heard news of the world for a few days, and so I think, well, I should turn on the radio and listen to the news. And so I decide to or not to. And very occasionally, I very consciously choose the pleasure of listening to music, maybe the pleasure of distracting myself. It doesn't seem very significant in talking about it, but actually, It does make a great difference in my life, and these small things make a great difference in our lives. Another change. Here on retreat, an especially big day for us might be something as mundane as it's the laundry day. I know for me, for many years, when laundry day was this huge addition to my day, to my practice day. And I would plan it before I'd go to bed the night before. And then the first thought that would come in my mind in the morning when I woke up was, it's laundry day. And I'd look at my plan, and I'd look at my list, and I'd think, well, when? Should I do it this time or that time? Spent a lot of time that day thinking, worrying this big day, this big event. And I, obviously, some of you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And today, maybe some of you have had the biggest day in the last six weeks or the last three months, (laughs) this big adventure going to the forest refuge. Really a big day. Someone called it a road trip. This is a poem by 
78-year-old Japanese wandering Buddhist poet, Nanao Sakaki. It's called A Big Day. Getting water at the spring. Carrying firewood. Chattering with the neighbor. The sun goes down. A big day. And just a little bit of a story about Nanao. Nanao used to spend quite a bit of time up at the Lama Foundation, which is just a little bit north of Taos, where I live. He'd show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag, and he'd stay there for a couple of days. And um, they were always very, very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out to the mountains with just this, nothing more, his small knapsack and his sleeping bag. And sometimes he'd be gone for days on end, sometimes weeks. And then he'd come back to Lama again and stay for a couple days. During the time when Nanao was doing this, a very dear friend of mine was the coordinator up at Lama. And she told me a story about one of these times when Nanao would, came in for a day or two from the mountains. He asked her and another friend if they'd like to come out to his camp for dinner at a on a certain day at a certain time. And of course, they were very delighted. This was an unheard of invitation. And now had never done this before. So on the appointed day and at the appointed time, my friend and this other person um, went out to Nanao's camping area that he'd given them very careful directions on how to find it. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there wasn't any food ready for dinner, and there wasn't any food in sight. And my friend said for a few minutes, she thought, well, maybe they'd made a mistake. You know, maybe it was the wrong day. Or she wasn't sure. But Nanao was delighted they were there. And he greeted them with a big hug and said, oh, I'm so glad, you know, you've come for dinner. And then he said, let's go out and find dinner. <laughs> and so they took a hike with Nanao out into the mountains. And they picked and they dug. And they collected, and they came back with a, quite a large quantity of fresh food, which that which needed to be cooked got cooked up, that which was eaten raw was eaten raw. And my friend said it was an absolutely delicious dinner. A big day. <laughs> my friend said that at that point, that night, she realized they'd all wondered how Nanao survived out in the mountains because he took this little tiny knapsack and a sleeping bag. And they couldn't figure out. He'd come back healthy and happy, and they now knew how he did it. A simple life, a very simple life. Someone in an interview in the last few days spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat having a really good taste. We taste it, this good taste. And we take it with us. It wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. Life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our family life, our job life, our work life. And yet there are many ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. 
And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relation to the work that we do, in the way that we spend time with partners and family. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. This good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And it, this taste actually can't be truly or completely replicated in our larger life. But this taste from retreat life can inspire us to do what we can to create a simpler, saner life outside of retreat. And one suggestion I might make is that um, don't make any big life-changing decisions just as soon as you leave retreat. You may have already made them. (laughs) Don't act on them just as soon as you leave retreat. Wait at least a few weeks or a month or maybe more before you either make the decisions or act on them. Let things settle. Let things integrate before making life-changing decisions. And there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with in our lives, all of us. This taste of simplicity has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy even in the midst of complex activities and relationships. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance, when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. We have more energy, we have more time available for our life to more directly and clearly be our practice. Simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there a great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. When I finished the afternoon visit a few weeks ago with Venerable Mahagosananda, 
who, by the way, his name translates, Mahagosananda's name translates as great sound of bliss. Maha great Gosananda sound of bliss. So when I finished that visit that I spoke about a few weeks ago, and as Mahagosananda and I walked together outside, he said to me, the last of the Buddha's 84,000 teachings was, take care. And then he said, take care, step by step. Take care, step by step, on this path. This path, this beautiful and noble path that the Buddha has offered us, step by step. It's not really a linear step by step in the way that first you take one step, completely finish one step, and then you take the next step. It's not like that. It feels to me much more like a spiral path moving around and around and repeating again and again, continuing to move up the spiral, we could say, with the core of the spiral being empty. Spiraling, stepping around and around emptiness, which can be touched and known at any moment along the journey. This step-by-step journey understanding, wisdom. How we think about things, our vision, our aspirations, our intentions. Learning to connect from the heart, living ethically, respectfully, harmlessly with ourselves and other beings. Our speech, how we communicate, our actions, the work we do, the motivation behind our words, our actions, our work, how others and ourselves are affected, learning to be kind, skillful, appropriate. Our energy, our effort, learning to use it in a balanced and a skillful way, cultivating wholesome, skillful states, simplifying our life as much as is appropriate at any given time for us, freeing up our energy so that we can make a clear effort towards engaging our life as our practice, learning to engage our energy and effort so that our whole life is the context for our awakening. Our whole life as our practice. How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most important question. The essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a mindful awareness 
into all the dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, and our play, all part of our meditation practice. Integrating a mindful awareness into all of it. From this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. From this perspective, it's really not so different from what you've been doing for the last six weeks or the last three months. As human beings, we really have the best conditions for awakening, the best conditions to inspire us and keep us engaged in practice, the best conditions for using our lives as the vehicle for our liberation. All of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. All of the joys, the irritations, the annoyances, the delights, the various frustrations and the various satisfactions, the myriad likes and dislikes, all that we experience in life, in retreat and outside of retreat, wonderful mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a number of years ago and who had long before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff told me a story that is a wonderful mirror of a particular and a somewhat difficult life situation and it being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France There was an old man who lived there who was a very difficult fellow. He was a very irascible fellow. She said he was really messy and that he didn't help, wouldn't help. She said he was quite argumentative. She said he didn't cooperate. And basically he didn't get along with anybody, she said, and nobody got along with him. She said that no one in the community liked him very much and that she felt like probably he didn't like anybody in the community very much either. He tried to stay there for a long time. He tried to stay in the community, but it was very, very difficult for him, and it was also difficult for others, so so difficult that he finally left. And he went to Paris. Couldn't bear it anymore. Well... She said that Gurdjieff followed him to Paris and tried to convince him to return to the community. But the man said he couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there, he said. So finally, Gurdjieff, after talking to him and trying to convince him, offered him a monthly stipend to come back to the community. Well, the man was very poor, so he couldn't refuse the offer, and he came back. When he returned, everyone in the community was really shocked, surprised, and not very happy about it. 
And when they found out that he was getting paid to be there, <laughs> and they themselves actually had to pay to be there, they were very upset, quite angry actually, complained a lot. So this woman said that Gurdjieff called a meeting, and he listened to everybody's anger, complaints, carrying on, and then he laughed. And he said that this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, and compassion. And that's why you pay me, and I pay him. <laughs> the conditions of our lives, the people in our lives, are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for our liberation, yeast for our awakening. There's one teaching amongst the 84,000 that the Buddha offered where he uses a metaphor of a mother who has four sons. He uses this metaphor for the development and the flowering of the four divine abodes, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka. Each of the sons, because of his particular personality, particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. I only have three sons, but they've definitely managed to be my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. My strongest teachers certainly in relation to these capacities of heart, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka. Our closest people can often be some of our best teachers. Just simply through them being who they are. Just simply through what they need and through what they give to us, what they show us. My two oldest sons, who are 38 now and are identical twins, continue to show me, continue to teach me a relationship that's really quite rare. They're each other's best friends. And although when they were little guys, they fought with each other, as children do, over all these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative, judgmental ways. Really never. They never put each other down. Never talk about each other in that way or to each other in that way no matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one of them has done or not done, no matter how the other's life is going. And they're not each other's keeper. They've never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think this is really quite a rare friendship 
And sometimes I'm actually in awe of it. And I learn from it. I learn a lot from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. This is a quote that's been attributed to the Tibetan teacher, Namkai Norbu. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. Like a madwoman or a madman, beyond all limits, go wherever you please and live like a lion, completely free of all fear. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn moves along this noble, sacred path is mindfulness. Is mindfulness and our ability to focus our attention directly and clearly on what is. And it's true, as Kamala mentioned the other night, and as many of you know, there's a change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of our mind. There's a change in the concentration aspect, a change from how it is on a long retreat like this as we reconnect with the larger world. And it's true there's a change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness, a change from how it is in a long retreat like this as we connect with the larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness isn't totally sustained outside of the retreat setting, the concentration and the mindfulness that we experience in a retreat like this is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. We don't lose it. Concentration and mindfulness are strengthened now. They're strengthened in us now and are always available to us at any given moment. And we need to continue to cultivate and to strengthen both of these qualities outside of this setting. It can weaken, it can dissipate if we don't. So what to do? The most obvious, of course, is to sit every day. Sit at least 45 minutes or maybe an hour every day. And if you can, sit twice a day. Do it. Do it if you can. Sit twice a day. At the end of a two-month retreat with Saida Upandita and other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks, and I asked him if he had any advice for me around taking practice into the whole of my life. And his response was, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. 
You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. Good advice. And also in terms of integrating mindfulness more and more fully into our lives, there are some particular ways that I and others have found to be quite helpful. One teacher I know suggests that at the end of each hour of the day, take one minute, just stop for one minute and be still and be mindful. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 minutes of a very directly focused, mindful time. Each moment of those moments following have an effect. The moments following those moments have an effect throughout the day. Personally, I don't do it that way. (laughs) I think it's a good idea for some people. But personally, I take five-minute intervals fairly randomly throughout the day. And I just stop and focus and be mindful. And as I said to someone this morning in an interview, they're like miracle moments, kind of like magic moments. It makes a tremendous difference throughout the rest of my day. Another way that I do quite specific momentary practice throughout my day is to touch into physical sensations through contact. So for instance, right now, my hands touching coolness, softness. My bottom touching the cushion, pressure. My posture, sitting. In a moment, just being right here, being here right now. Mindfulness and concentration is immediately connected with and strengthened each time we do this. I think the only hard thing about doing these brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. And I know some people who put little notes to themselves or they write little notes to themselves and they post them around their home or in their workplace to remind them to check in. There was a fellow here on staff some years ago who worked in the front office, and he had a little small stand-up note on his desk that said, buttocks. (laughs) 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 Which, of course, made us laugh every time we went in and saw it on the desk. But it was there to remind him to notice the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. Practice while you're preparing food. The great Zen master Dogen talks about handling even a single leaf of a green as though it were the body of the Buddha, as though it manifests the body of the Buddha, and in turn allows the Buddha to manifest through the leaf, the green. Practice while you're preparing food. So here's another Namkai Norbu poem. Not Namkai Norbu, Nanao Sakaki, sorry. A Nanao poem. 
If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. Walking meditation. Walking meditation is, or it can be really, a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of connecting and continuing the concentration and mindfulness. And most of us walk at least a few miles every day just going from here to there. We can take some of this walking and make it a time for practice. When I lived here, as I mentioned a few years ago as resident teacher for the staff, my living space and my workspace was in M107, just up the stairs. And because I did a lot of interviews and had quite a few meetings, I didn't have much time during the day to do walking practice. So at one point I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs, would be my walking meditation time. And I really did do this most of the time, every time I went up and down the stairs. At one point, a staff member came in for an interview, and he was obviously quite agitated. And with a fair amount of difficulty, he told me that he was very upset because I was ignoring him. He felt abandoned by me, and he was wondering if I was mad at him. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. So I told him that when I was going up and down the stairs, I was meditating. And I certainly hadn't abandoned him, and I wasn't mad at him. It's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. And of course, this completely changed his attitude. And he was happy for me and told me he thought it was a great idea. People might not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. (laughs) But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. If you're connected with the metta practice, practice metta anywhere, everywhere, in the airport when you leave here, while you're driving your car, when you ride on public transportation, when you're walking down the street, in your sitting meditation. If you've connected with the metta practice and do two sits each day, you might consider making one of them a metta sit. Sometimes doing metta for the first 15 minutes of a 45-minute or one-hour practice period can be a very skillful thing to do for periods of time. And it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. And we certainly can see and feel the benefit of this in a retreat like this. If you're not connected at least sometimes with a group, even just a group of two or three to sit with once in a while, check and see if there's a sitting group in your area. If there isn't, start one. 
which might mean just asking one or two people to you know who meditate to join you once a week or every other week. You can sit together, maybe listen to a tape or read something out loud, maybe taking turns each week as to who chooses what's being read, and maybe have some Dharma discussion together. You might choose to, for instance, pick a theme for a week or a couple of weeks to focus on. In Taos at the small meditation center where I teach, I teach classes, four to six week classes on various Dharma subjects. Might be one of the Brahma Viharas or the Four Noble Truths or Anicca or other Dharma topics. And people take the specific Dharma subject into their life, into their mindful attention throughout the week, into their daily life. There's a lot of learning that can happen with this approach. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, spoke about the importance of the connection with spiritual friends. Venerable Ananda said to the Buddha, Half of this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. The Buddha responded, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible, be a conscious intent to practice. This is a poem that was found in Pete's Coffee Shop in Menlo Park, California, titled, Using Life Wisely. People are unreasonable, illogical, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you're successful, you win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. People favor underdogs and follow only top dogs. Fight for some underdogs anyway. People really need help, but may attack you if you help them. Help them anyway. Give the world the best you've got, and you might get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you've got anyway. Meditation is one of the great arts in this life. Krishnamurti says, perhaps the greatest. It can take place anytime, anywhere. It can take place everywhere. When we have the intention to live awake, when we have the intention to awaken to the true nature of experience, the not-self, empty nature of experience, when we have the intention to be fully present in all that arises, which is the heart of compassion. 
if we're patient and determined in our practice, in here and out there, it's inevitable that joy increases, peace increases, wisdom increases, and the ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. So practice in here and out there, everywhere. That's our possibility. I'd like to close this sit with a chanting of the sharing of the blessings. This is a chant that is done at the Amaravati Monastery at the end of every evening. And I think it's really a beautiful reflection that our practice is not just done for selfish reasons, that our practice is really a blessing, and that all of our blessings, the blessings of our practice, the blessings of our life, that we share them. It's not just for me, but for the welfare of all sentient beings. There's some extra sheets if some of you don't have it. And some of you know this chant, so please chant with vigor with me. (laughs) Uh, Just to mention, the little dots are tonal dots. So the, the up and down tones. It'll make sense when I do it. Now let us chant the now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue my mother my father and my relatives the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly indifferent or hostile. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth 
May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.